Good afternoon and welcome to another episode of A Contagious Smile. I am so blessed and honored to have Guy Morris with us this afternoon. He has led an extraordinary life, to say the least. He has gone from homelessness to the boardroom and all and everywhere in between. I really want to do him justice by allowing him to give more of an insight into his unbelievable accomplishments in his life. Guy, thank you so very much for joining with us today. It's my pleasure and honor. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. So tell us, how do you go from homelessness to the boardroom? I know there's a huge space there in between, of course, but. Well, one thing you have to learn to give up is sleep. Uh, yeah, I can see that. <laughs> um, but the one thing you can't ever give up is is the belief that it, you don't know where you're going to end up. If you if you aim high, the trajectory may fall, but it, it's going to fall better than if you aim low. And I, I was never honestly sure. I, I was raised being told repeatedly that I was a worthless, dumb yes. So sorry. Um, and. And for a very long time, I believed that. I was told that the best I could ever hope to do was to maybe join a trade union and uh, at least get a, minim- a good minimum wage. Um, and so through, I, I left home, I got a GED at, night at 50, age 15 and left home for good uh, after being a homeless runaway at age 13 for six months. Um, it was, there was a lot of, de- enormous amount of domestic violence and, and, um, and, and, and other, other issues I won't go into, but by the time I was 19, I was already married and had a toddler and, mm-hmm. and I was struggling with real minimum wage, you know, hardcore, sure. um, heavy, heavy lifting, you know, kind of, um, 12 hour day kind of jobs that barely paid the rent. Okay. And through a, what I can only call a miracle, um, someone saw something in me and um, offered to help me to help pay for my college tuition and books. I still had to support my own living. And so I, I applied to college thinking that this, now at the time I was functionally illiterate. I had to get my first wife's help to even fill in the application. And I, and, and I decided to do this because I had received a kind of a, a word in prayer that really didn't make sense to me at all. Basically said, get up right now, go to call university and ask for an application. Well, this was like the first of week in August and the school started like in three weeks. So I'm like, this is, this is ridiculous. This is insane. This is never going to happen. Right. I said, I, I, you know, it must be a, a drug, you know, a kind of a flashback or from the, my drug days or something. I really wasn't sure. And, but they let me in, which at first startled me. Right. I was like, oh, wow. I thought college was for smart people who had prepared really hard. <laughs> right. I said, man, they'll let anybody in. Um, but, you know, I, I came to realize it was just, it was just a miracle happening for me. And, and, and I did that before somebody had come in. And, and then when I got accepted, I actually threw the, the envelope away because I had no money. And so it was the very next day that someone called me up and, and asked me if they could help me. And I had told nobody about what I was doing. Amazing. So it was an amazing thing. And because of that, I felt like, okay, this is, this is God giving me a chance. Yeah. And I, I, I decided that the only thing that I could do was to put 150% into this to no holds bar. Even if I did poorly at the beginning, even no matter what happened, I had to, work as if my life depended on it because I think at the time in my head, my life depended on it. Mm -hmm. 
And I, I did. And, and, and at first it was hard. I, I was, was struggling to get passing grades. Um, I was struggling to keep up on the reading. I was struggling with the workload um, of working, uh, you know, uh, enough to pay the rent and put food on the table as you well. You had a full-time job too, right? And I had a toddler. Um, and so I was, I was pushed to my limits on every level. And um, along about halfway through, something either clicked in my head or, or I'm not sure exactly what happened, but I really started to get it. I started, my grades started shooting up rapidly. Uh, I ended up on the Dean's list. And um, one of the things that we had to do in order to pass, and I, at that point I was taking, I was working on multiple degrees by the end. So I'd gone from barely struggling to multiple degrees. And um, one of the things I had to do to graduate was build a macroeconomic model. And the, our, the professor basically taught on the curve. So the closer you got to the actual number uh, that you were forecasting, it was an A and everybody, the farther away you were, that was your grade. I really wanted to go to grad school with all my heart, and, but I had no more money. My, my right. funding had run out. Um, my chances had run out. Um, and so I, I, I made a deal with the professor. I said, if I can, if I can beat out everybody else in, this, in, in the class, would you consider me for a scholarship to grad school? And, and he agreed. Um, well, I spent, to, in order back then, you had, you didn't, it was before personal computers. So you had to go into the mainframe. Um, and there were terminals at the mainframe, the data center at the, at the university. But in order to get a terminal, you, if, if you went any time during the day, it was like a two-hour wait. And, and I just didn't have that kind of time. Oh. I, the other things going on. So I would show up at midnight. And more often than not, I would work till about 8 o'clock in the morning. That's dedication. And I spent several months working on a new theory in economics that had never been proven before and trying to prove out that theory, building algorithms and, and, and building the model. And at the end of the day, and it had to do with productivity of technology. It was really kind of unheard of back in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, and... Um, as it turned out, I, I outforecast the outperformed the Federal Reserve and, and pretty much every other bank and, and university in the nation. I was one tenth of one percent off of all the actual numbers, and that was an unheard of level of accuracy. And it happened not once but two quarters in a row. Wow, good for so you! That got the attention of the Federal Reserve, um, got the attention of several big banks that wanted to hire me. But at that point, I was so burned out on doing <laughs> algorithms. <laughs> I bet. I was like, no, no, no. Okay. I accepted it Harvard, but I didn't have any money to go to Harvard. But the University of Arizona, as they promised, gave me a scholarship. And so I stayed there. And because I, 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 it, and I, I'm from California. So anything below 70 degrees in my body says that's technically dead winter. <laughs> if it got down to 65 or 60s, that's an Arctic chill, dude. The news lady says it'll pass. So I, going to Boston was like, oh, no, 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 Harvard. Oh, Harvard, dude, Boston. No, no, no. no, no. So I, I stayed where I was. I got a job at IBM and that started my career. And, and um, it, it, was, it was a humbling, astounding experience I didn't expect. I just thought I'd squeak my way through and maybe outperform the other kids in the class. Um, and, and the fact that it did so well and it got so much attention um, caught me off guard. Now, you have to give yourself credit. Is it not true that you had three degrees by the time you were 27? 
Um, I have um, three degrees and plus a minor in computer science. Good yeah. for you. Good for you. And, um, and, but I, you know, and, and I, I got really, really sick toward the end uh, because I had worked myself into, in, into like mono, right? Like really yeah, sick? I actually had valley fever, which is a form of mono, right? And so I was actually in bed for several, uh, about uh, four months, um, and which kind of slowed me down a little bit. And it took a while to kind of get my stamina back. But I had, I had pretty much just worked myself to the bone um, trying to get there. And um, <laughs> that would be a, that would be, that would be a pattern that I would repeat in my life a few times. Um, but yeah, it started a great career. I got to work with amazing companies like IBM and Burroughs, which became Unisys and Oracle and Microsoft and Occidental Petroleum, which is a, most people don't know about it, but it's one of the, was, they got bought out, but it was one of the largest um, oil and gas exploration companies and energy, and they had coal and natural gas, and they had all these divisions all around the world. Um, and um I, I continued to be an innovator. I continued to look for ways of, because I had, I, I had the ability to sort of think through what's the next step and how to build that next step and, and how to do it without any roadmaps, hardly at all. And that was a skill that got a lot of attention. And so uh, I eventually was reporting to a CXO uh, of Occidental. Um, I was, uh, I reported often to VPs in my life. Um, I many times I was given corporate offices. I had corporate, I flew on the corporate jet when we had to travel. Um, I, I was extremely well compensated um, and um, got to work on th things where a good portion of my career was like, wow, that was a great job. What do you want to do next? And I said, well, I could go over this. Okay. Well, tell me your job, write your own job description and, you know, get started. And it was a, uh, it was an, challenging career that constantly pushed me. I got to experiment with early stages of internet and um, the networking and artificial intelligence. Wow. Um, I, when I reached Microsoft, I ran a group called, that went after the largest, most complicated service projects that we had that were often with leading edge technologies that had never been deployed before. And so it was, I, I constantly was able to work with I'm blessed to say that I, I constantly had an opportunity to work with incredible geniuses. Um, many of my career, super successful executives, most of my career. And um, it, it was, it was a, it was a great, it was a great ride. And I even had some startups during that time though. I, I, one of the things that influenced me the most in college was learning about the men of the Renaissance. And what struck me about them is that while most of the industry, most of the business world was talking about specialization for a long time, the men of the Renaissance were the perfect generalists. They, were, they studied science, they studied um, art, they studied religion, they studied um, economics and politics. They, were, they felt that in order to be the best that they could be, they had to be well-rounded. And so even while I was doing this really geeky, intense job, I was, I was an artist. I, I, I played guitar. I wrote songs. I wrote songs for Disney for a while. That's what I was going to ask about next. <laughs> uh, that was an unusual. I, actually, it started when a friend of mine, um, uh, who was a film producer, uh, wanted to go pitch Nickelodeon and on the idea of setting up an MTV type of um, show on their on their channel for kids music. And, and I wasn't aware of really how much kids music there was out there and how popular some of them were. 
And I said, well, that's okay. That sounds like an interesting idea. He said, well, what songs are you going to use? He says, that's the problem. I don't really have any. And he said, this one guy gave me these songs and he played them and they were like all heavy grunge rock kind of songs. <laughs> I don't think that's really what they're looking for. And he says, I know, I know. And he says, so will you write me some? So I wrote him some songs and we record, we went into the studio and he paid to this record them and he loved the songs and, and he didn't get the deal with Nickelodeon. So I thought, oh, no worries. No, no skin off my nose. You know, I didn't have to pay for anything. And, but he, uh, six months later, I got a call from Disney records and um, long story short, apparently he had sent the tape to Disney records. And so they invited me to work on different projects um, for a couple of years and, and on and off. And uh, that was an interesting experience as well. Um, and I, I earned a, I moved my son and I moved aboard a 50 foot sailing cutter at one point because I wanted to have our weekends, not about cleaning the house and, yeah. you know, sort through all the we, we lived in kind of a, a condo in a an area that was in LA that was sort of split between good families and and, and, and gangs and, and I wanted them to get out of that so we moved to the marina and that was a great experience I got a, I ultimately earned a, a Coast Guard charter captain license so I could basically charter out the boat and, and, and pay for all the maintenance on the boat and, and um, so we lived a good life. I, I was a worship leader in Venice Beach, California, which is the most interesting place you could ever go to lead worship. And uh, <laughs> the stories behind that. Um, half the time, people would be walking by the church on the way to beach. On the way to the beach, they would get pulled in. So sometimes the last row or two of the church were basically people in their bikinis and sarongs. Yeah. <laughs> 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 But through all of this, um, the traumas that I had suffered as a child, um, that I try, I thought that I could run away from, that I thought I could ignore. I thought I, if I was just successful enough, all of that would just go away. It doesn't. Um, and, and you're right. It, it didn't. And so I struggled with addictions. Um, I struggled with um chronic depression, hyper anxiety, the uh, oftentimes the inability, I was the perfect geek. I, I really had struggled even talking to people or interacting with people. Um, after my, it, it led me to a divorce. Um, I, I lost in the, in the separation. I was able to keep my son, but I was lost my daughter. Um, and and it, there was a lot of pain in that. Sure. And, um, sense of failure from that. Um, and it, and at the time, psychologists, therapists really had no concept of post-traumatic stress, mm -hmm. what it was, where it came from, how to deal with it. And so I, I would get a lot of these sort of surface, you know, you know, self-help kind of stuff that in some senses worked, but in other senses never really got to the heart of the matter. And so it took to my mid fifties before I finally had a breakdown and was diagnosed with PTSD and, and, and started pulling all the started it started answering all the questions of, of why and, and what happened and, and why I couldn't get over certain things and, and it helped me go on to a different path that allowed me to a, now to a much better state of mental health and, and emotional Thank health um, but it was a hard journey uh, because I and it was the other reason why I couldn't drink the Kool-Aid um, even though I was working with all of these extremely successful people in college, we learned the idea that corporations were sort of part of the community. They had a they had a responsibility to not only their shareholders but to their employees and to the community itself. In the real world, I came to realize that really did, that was more 
hype than than reality right. and um that greed um um a super aggressive behavior um even dishonesty um uh, every every all the things that you see in the movies about you know corporations and how they can they can be evil they're not always but they can be um were true and that disillusionment um along with my sense my hiding the fact that I was I had addiction issues and hiding the fact that I had all these depression and other issues and hiding it all and, and trying to just work so hard that my performance or my outcomes were, would basically speak for me so that I didn't really have to deal with um, the things that were going on underneath. And that um, negligence to my own mental health came back to haunt me. And, but it also kept me from drinking the Kool-Aid. I never right. really believed that the corporate, I, I started to realize that what we were doing in the corporation wasn't right. What we were doing, the strategies that we were taking weren't really right. They, 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 I was having this conflict of conscience on an ongoing basis. And, and the more that grew, and I thought, well, I can change the companies and that, that, that would solve it. That would and solve it, but it doesn't. For a while it did, it did until you get close enough where you start to realize the truth. And, and so it was a constant struggle for me to basically continue to put, to work myself to the bone where I was starting to say, well, why am I really doing this? Is it really the money? And, and, and to be honest, I, I was so poor growing up that yeah, for a time it was the money. I said, well, I, I never, ever want to be that poor again. Right. And I was always afraid that if I stopped, I would just simply fall off the cliff. And um, so there was a there was a real struggle for me to to really kind of find that balance. And it, and it was it took hard work. It took um, uh, finding the right the right wife. I've been married now for 30 years. My wife is an angel. And I, 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 I say that um, without any hesitation at all that I think she literally is. <laughs> Um, she, and, um, and, but it also took a, a, a therapist and it also took hard work and it also took a lot of prayer and it also took the, 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 most important thing I had to learn was to be able to hold myself up to a mirror and, and not, and, and look and, and take it a ruthlessly honest view that I couldn't become the man I wanted to be until I could fully reconcile the man I was. And, um, that that that's not as easy as it sounds it's not it absolutely is not especially for someone who had been successful and had built the pride and certainly even then um not being able to really confide in my co-workers at all there, there was that, that kind of kept me at a distance from pretty much everybody at work and even everybody at church um, many people didn't understand so it that kind of dealing with those kind of issues really can isolate you. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I learned to be able, I, I had grown up isolated. So I, I, I had a framework for that. Right. <laughs> um, that was your uh, mindset. That was my mindset is uh, uh, no one. No one's going to do this for me. Uh, if, if I'm going to do anything in my life that's good, it's got to come from it's, it's got to come from within. Yes. And that only only I could invest in myself. And, um, and even though others would benefit from that investment, including me, uh, I was the only one who could really do it. And, um, and so, yeah, it, it, it took a long time to really work through those transitions. But I had I, I come out and I say, wow, I, 
I've spoken to generals and I've, I've worked with generals and, and admirals and, and CXOs and presidents and VPs and geniuses and, and people that are leading the world in terms of energy and policy and governments and, and artificial intelligence and technology. And I've been a part of that um, for um, several decades. And um, I, that as, even though I, um, I, I, and it allowed me to kind of see the world in, in a holistic way, mm-hmm. not not in the way that you're told on television, not in the way you're right. told on the news, but to have a real realistic view as to how those dynamics and those personalities and those goals and, and, and those drivers really work. And kind of in a sense, why we're kind of in the mess we're in today on, on a global level. And um, I think that when I retired, um, I, I think it, there was very little doubt in my mind that what I wanted to do with all of that was to write. Right. And I, I had the choice of saying, well, I could write some pretty harsh, I could write some pretty harsh critical memoirs about the corporate world. I said, well, that's really just going to make enemies. That's not going to change anybody. Uh, I could write um, uh, good business books on the things that I learned. I thought, well, yeah, that's, that's possible, but that's more influential when you're already still in business and you can build clients and do all that kind of stuff. And, 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 and I thought, well, I love Michael Crichton. I love Dan Brown. I love James Rawlings. I love the thriller writers who were really good at taking real world issues real world technologies, real world politics, real world flaws, and then spinning a really great story out of all of that. And so that's where I turned my attention. Let's and, to the uh, books. Yeah. It's, uh, it's now I've written my third. I'm working on my fourth. Um, every book is deeply grounded on lots of research and real world experiences and events. And so that level of plausibility actually I think makes a better thriller because I, I have many people reading my books saying, wow, that really could happen. Couldn't it? I said, yeah, yeah. It could. Um, and, and that really, I think that not only gives you a great entertaining experience, which is what I want, but more so I'm looking for the ability for people to be informed yes, and be able to have thoughtful conversations and, and uh, about the, about what it means. Right. And make great personal and then, challenge themselves to make, well, what kind of personal choices does this mean I should have about my career or my priorities or my family or my faith um, and uh, my spirituality? And so um, I'm hoping to provoke questions and I'm hoping to provoke thought and and dialogue. And while you're having fun, loving the characters and turning the pages. Well, I absolutely, my hat's off to you for your empowerment and your strength and where you come from. But before we go into your characters or your books, who I, I love how we talked about the, the characters of your books and how you came up to them. I know I'm going to have so many people ask me if they, if I would ask you how many or which songs you had anything to do with, with Disney. Oh, <laughs> you know, we have so many kids that listen. So I know I'm going to have, I have a Disney lot of make kids too. Two different they're, they're such a big organization. Most people are aware of the songs they see in the movies. Sure. And those are a whole different class. But they they also produce hundreds of songs every year 
that may only sell a few hundred thousand copies uh, because what they'll do is they'll take the they'll take for example the little mermaid movie and then mm -hmm. they'll create a bunch of little mermaid toys and then they'll sell those toys at the time it was a cassette now it's a cd or i don't even know what they're doing now um, but for the time it was a cassette of um, songs that weren't the high license top brand songs from the movie but new songs and so they would have projects that they would work on like they had one project i worked on called scary songs and they had different disney characters singing scary songs and and these were targeted for kids so it was things like you know i'm afraid of thunder or um, i'm afraid of um, you know I, I different i can't remember some of the themes i wrote one that they they loved um um, that was essentially a takeoff of Calvin and Hobbes uh, called that dragon in the closet. And, and um, they, they liked that one, bought that one. Um, and then they said, well, we're, now we're going to work on a song. They had a television show at the time called dinosaurs. And it was basically all these Muppet like dinosaurs, with, you know, almost like with a, um, a real comical, you know, um, I, you know, I'm stuck in the door again. And, and the, <laughs> baby cries and you know the the the, the like the lounge lizard kind of uh, character and and so I wrote one that I wrote a few songs for them on that one one they picked up was called Bone Age Bayou and another one was um um, um primitive um and I thought they were going to pick up one called Jungle Java and they didn't um um but uh, let's get primitive was one of them uh, then I, I think I worked on an Aladdin project and I worked on a little mermaid project and uh, there that was another so project I worked on and I'm having a mental block on what that's okay. It's okay. That is uh, so it was a weird, weird kind of work experience. They would call you up typically middle of the week, like on a Tuesday or, you know, Wednesday or Tuesday or, you know, sometime early in the week. And they say, Hey, yeah, uh, how are you doing? Hey, we got a project. Uh, I'm going to fax you over the spec sheet. And um, cause that's what they used back then. And, um, and, and we, we need some songs by next Tuesday, you know, <laughs> you got uh, seven like days, you got two weeks. Hey, I'm going to give you two weeks on this one. Wow. You know? So you had to, and, and they would want three to five songs. And so you basically had to, you know, while you're working your day job, right. And caring for your son and doing the other things you were doing, you had to kind of sit down and figure out a way to write three to five songs and, and somehow get into um, this was before the days of, home studios and stuff like that. So you had to get into, I, fortunately I had a friend of mine who had a, a really good studio and, and he would give me a lot of free time. Um, so, but then you had to kind of go in and at least do a basic recording. You didn't have to have the full production or anything else. I actually preferred that you didn't, but you had a week or two to basically pull it together. And then, you know, a few weeks after that, they'd tell you if you, they wanted to buy any of them. Um, and then that would, pretty much be the last year to hear of it. You'd, you'd get a start getting a royalty check in uh, quarterly every month or every quarter. And I use that to help pay for my son's private school and, and start setting up him up for college. But it was an interesting experience. I, I quit when um, there was one song. They really loved the entire song except for one line. And they had given this project to a particular producer. And that producer said, well, I, I want to rewrite that one line. I said, well, no problem. He said, what's your issue with it? And he told me, I said, oh, I can fix that. And he said, well, I'm going to send over so and so, somebody to, to work with you on that. I said, I really don't think it's necessary. Yeah, no, I, I insist. And he sent over his girlfriend. Oh. Now, by the time oh. she got to my boat, I had already rewritten the song and I played it for her. She said, I love that. And I said, okay, well, let's, we'll submit this. And um, next thing I know, he had given her half of my royalty. What? Because she had been involved in writing the song. Because she listened. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. So I was like, you know, I, I had a real job. I said, you know, guys, this is fun. Wow. It's not that much fun. <laughs> uh, if you're going to cheat me, then I'm, I'm kind of done. And, I'm and done. Yeah. after that, I, I started talking to other people and they said, oh, yeah, yeah. Mickey Miser. Now that we call him Mouse Witch. Um, <laughs> but I started realizing how difficult they can be to work with. So, I, But it, it was a great experience. Uh, my son loved it. Uh, he got a full. Uh, there's uh, there's actually if you go to Guy um, Morris uh, dot Bandcamp. Dot com. Uh, one of the albums on Bandcamp is um, some of the demos and songs I wrote for Disney. Oh, cute. I'm definitely going to get the link and put that up with everybody. I would love if you would tell us about your characters in your books, especially I work so much, Guy, with a lot of autistic families. And the fact that you have an autistic character as the main character in one of your books, I think is just amazing. Could you tell us a little bit about them? Uh, his, his, he's a, a genius hacker who is a, a cryptology genius who uh, basically fled the CIA because he could never fit in. He's now working with an underground group of sort of vigilante hackers who are what called white hacks. Um, um, his name is Jester. Uh, his real name is Jason. Um, and he has all kinds of he, he's hyperactive, autistic has very weird speech patterns. He's from the Jersey shore. So he's kind of got a lot of that kind of combination. His father was a um, hard right wing evangelical pastor. Wow. So he's got some of that background that he's kind of rejected a little bit. Um, uh, and he, he, <laughs> he's basically the, the, um, genius behind one of the main characters who's sort of the the, the out there in the world sort of um, engaging with everybody else trying to kind of solve some some of these world problems that we're having and so but he's he works with quantum computers and he works with um, um, really high functioning AI sentient computers uh, but he really has a hard time f interacting with very many other people and um, uh, he he uh, and, and ironically, I had one of my readers uh, telling me recently that he's one of their that Jester's one of their favorite characters um, because he's he's funny um, in in the fact that uh, he'll he'll respond he responds to things in very kind of weird ways he has sort of these sort of tap ticks and he'll just break into a little dance when he when he's trying to talk he, because he that's he's that's just how he's processing things he he his, his body movements and then he and then he, he it stumbles on him and so he's he, he he loves the people that he's working with because they love him for who he is and without judging him at all and and they just accept all of his oddities um, and, and so I get to write a character who um, would be difficult to fit into most business, corporate, church, any other environment, certainly didn't fit in the CIA. He only got in there because his uncle was high up in, in national intelligence community and, and knew his genius. But um, he's now a fugitive um, because of the things that some of the things that he's done. And so he's hiding out. And he has these really um, all, not snarky because he, he, he's not mean, but um, um, kind of counter viewpoints to uh, how he interacts with things. The main character actually came from a traumatized childhood. He was 
sent into the foster care uh, system uh, at age five or six after a what he believes was a murder-suicide of his parents. Um, we'll find out later that there was something more nefarious going on. Um, and he hacked his way into UCLA um, by basically creating, you know, forging a lot of his, his credentials. Um, and while he was at UCLA, he wound up getting introduced to a, the, an AI that had escaped the Lawrence Livermore Labs, um, which is based on a true story. Um, and, uh, and I'll deviate from the character just a second to tell the story because it's a lot of fun. I actually discovered through an Associated Press article, uh, a short little article that all it said was a program had escaped the Lawrence Livermore Laboratories at Sandia. If I knew anything to contact this professor at the lab or this FBI agent in charge of the investigation. I cut that article out. I taped it on my monitor. I looked at it every single day for months on end because it didn't say the program was lost didn't say the program was stolen, didn't say it was corrupted, didn't say it malfunctioned. It said a program had escaped the Lawrence Livermore Laboratories. Now, most people don't know, but that's an NSA spy lab. They do signals, they do cryptology, they created the Sexnet virus, they do some of the most advanced tool development of all of our cyber espionage um, on, on the earth. They're, they're one of the most advanced places. And so in my head, I'm, I'm reading this as a spy program. Mm -hmm has escaped spy labs. <laughs> they don't know how to find it. <laughs> That's thinking, a book. <laughs> that, that, is, that is an incredible story. Right? So the character in the book, uh, which I named Sylvia. Now, it, it, interestingly enough, in 2016, CNN reported that Russia had attacked a uh, CIA cyber toolkit. And in that cyber toolkit was virtually every single one of the functional attributes I had ultimately assigned to this escaped program, thinking if it had that amazing capability, which implied intent and intelligence, the ability to move itself, the ability to race its trail, what, what would they want him to do with this perfectly stealth program? Right. And I came up with a bunch of functional attributes. It turned out I nailed all of them, which was why the FBI came to my house. They came to your door? Uh, two F uh, after all of this was done, two FBI agents showed up at my door. <laughs> now, they were rather perturbed that I had completely decoded and nailed something they really thought should be top secret. <laughs> and, and, and I had to convince that they, they knew. And I, I convinced them that, well, I didn't hack anything. I said, you guys, should, you guys messed up. You shouldn't have put that in the article. I said, don't blame me. Tell, tell blame the person who was talking. I said, and if I'm smart enough to figure this out, don't you think somebody else is smart enough to figure this out? Um, but they they were they were unhappy about it. They went to the at the time uh, and along and uh, never mind. But my wife at the time was freaking out. Um, she she was like, okay, why are two FBI agents in our dining room? And <laughs> what did you do? And uh, who what are do you do now? <laughs> so it was it was quite an experience. So it was so I, I had to make that character that program into a character in the book. And so the, these character, um, my characters are all interacting with this program. And in this program, the, the, the in the books, the program has now reached a sentient level of, of maturity and has decoded in time prophecy. Nobody understands really what it's trying to tell them with all of that. But my main character then is very sarcastic and sardonic, but he's living, he's also living a, a, a false, he, he's taken on the identity of a best friend who was killed in an explosion that was meant for him. Wow. And so, um, and while his best friend had basically was cheating with his fiance. 
So he's got a lot of baggage kind of tied up with, he's got a false identity that allowed him to basically escape being framed for that explosion. Um, but he also wants to find the people who tried to kill him. Uh, it was because he had hacked a Bilderberg server um, and uh, some they sent somebody to silence him. Um, and so he's got, he's basically living now a contractor for the NSA living under a false identity. So he's constantly hiding and running from the world as well um, because he's doesn't, he, and, and feeling like he can't ever really allow himself to get, close to anybody because it not only could endanger his own safety, it could endanger theirs. And so the characters of uh, another character is the Admiral's daughter. Um, she, her mother died of cancer when she was only 13 and she had uh, became sort of the Admiral's um, pet project. And so she's been brought up in this very intense, um, um, very male um, 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 military sort of uh, upbringing. And while she's done extremely well, She's also feels like she's missing things in her life and she's and she's dealing with sort of uh, trust and dealing with um, sort of her place among this sort of masculine environment uh, as uh, while she's basically trying to figure out, is this really who she is? And so and the, another character is um, was the creator of this program and creator of uh, some of the DARPA AI weapons that are being developed right now, which you'll learn about in the book. Um, and, and he's now going through, he came from a very privileged background. Um, he's British, so he's kind of up and nose, but he, he, great dresser, great dresser. Um, and um, in his arrogance, he's basically discounted any level of spirituality or anything emotional because he's so uh, intellectually bound into his technology and science. He has to go through a, um, a spiritual kind of awakening of the fact that he's he's the creator he's the founder he's the, been one of the ones pushing for decades uh within darpa the development of these advanced weapons now that they're starting to lose control over and so every character every main character in the book is is are finding each other based on their flaws and their weaknesses they're things that 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 um keep them real without being sort of the James Bond Q sort of artificial, you know, we can blow up half the world, but we feel good about it because we won. Um, and, and so it was, it, it allows me to really go through my own um, background and some of my own revelations and some of my own transitioning from homeless to boardroom to eyes open um, sort of transitions and, and build those into my characters. And so, and, and and it makes them approachable. It makes them likable. It makes them, they're not um, the Navy SEAL, um, you know, um, CIA can kill you seven ways before Sunday for the flag, sir, kind of character. They're, 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 they question what the right thing to do is. They, they don't really have an allegiance to any particular flag or, or, or anything else. And, and they're trying to figure out uh, how do they, how do they, how does this change them? What, how do they, how do they sort through all of these things going on? So I, I, I love it because it allows me to um, see, put myself into their position and see the world through their eyes and, and try to um, relate that char how characters can be reluctant heroes 
um, um, while also self-doubting themselves and, 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 and trying to find that way of, of, of keeping people at a distance, but also wanting to pull them close. Now I have such an important question. What's the name of this book? Well, the, there's three books. Um, the first one is Swarm. And in Swarm, you'll get introduced to all of these characters and, and the artificial intelligence and the darker weapons and the politics that are going on in our world. It deals with 2016, 2020 and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, and so you'll meet all these characters, including the AI. And um, I won't tell you who else because I don't want to spoil it, but there's spoil a... Uh, well, I... I the evolution of what will happen when, when AI becomes sentient. And it, and we all, we, one of the risks of AI today, which is a real risk is that we've taught um, machine learning is about AI being re able to reprogram itself. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes developers don't really understand the programming that the AI has done. It's basically turning into a mystery. Well, we've also teaching AI how to um, write from code from scratch. So what will happen when a sentient AI learns how to, it learns how to write code? And it goes back in my mind to the Michael Crichton book and, and the whole theme of that book, which is life will find a way. And I'll just leave it there. Oh. Um, and so the second book, which is called The Last Ark, deals with other real issues, carries through these characters and carries through some of the same themes of, of quantum computing and artificial intelligence and weapons development and corrupt politics and corrupt religion and prophecy and get carried through to a scenario uh, about a speculative scenario about the third art or the third temple. And most people don't realize, and one of the things I started thinking about, well, a temple really makes no, no sense without an ark. And I realized that there was an Ark of the Covenant that's been in Ethiopia for 2,600 years. It actually left Israel 2,600 years ago, was on Elephant Island for 900 years before the Romans chased them into Ethiopia, where it was in synagogues, and then the Templars moved them into churches. All of that is factual history. There's scrolls, there's scribes, there's, art, uh, there's uh, documentation, there's archaeology. All of that's true. And, and, and in January 21, this is also true, uh, an Ethiopian army and militia stormed the city of Axum, stormed the, the church that this was held at called St. Mary's of Zion, massacred 750 men, women, and children, including the guardian of the Ark, stole the Ark, and sold it on the black market. So I go through who would have the money, the power, the influence, and the desire to do that. And then I lined it up with the second Ark story that's also true. In the 1960s, there was a copper scroll found in uh, with near the, all the other Dead Sea Scrolls near Qumran, which is on the West Bank uh, um, near the Dead Sea. And in that scroll was, once, once they were able to unfold it and save it and read it and everything else, it had 64 locations where pre-Babylonian temple priests had hidden tens of tons of, of treasures, gold, silver, uh, vessels, uh, all kinds of sacred treasures, um, worth tens of billions of dollars, uh, maybe more. And in the 64th location was a second copper scroll that describes where Jeremiah hid the Ark of Testimony made by Moses. Now, this is all confirmed in the um, Jewish book of Maccabees uh, 2. Mm -hmm. 
So the, the stories about this are, are all historical stories. And so they found basically a confirmation of those stories through this Kaaba scroll. But for 50 years, people were unable to find any of these locations because they were all looking in the city of Jerusalem, thinking that that's, it was speaking about Jerusalem. Well, they couldn't find anything. So they said, well, it's because Jerusalem has been destroyed and rebuilt too many times and who knows whatever happened to this. About six or seven years ago, a guy came along, a really smart guy came along and decoded all 64 locations underneath the ruins of Qumran itself. He went and convinced the Israeli Sanhedrin that he was right. They went and convinced the Israeli Archaeology and Antiquities Group to go do metal scans, and they found non-ferrous metals under every single location. But they dug down two feet and then basically covered up and said, well, there's, it's not here. There's no truth to this. The reason why they're trying to cover it up is because that's Palestinian West Bank land. They can't legally dig there or they would lose everything. It would go into a military warehouse. They'd never see it again. But ironically, that was about the same time that they started talking about a single state solution. So um, those two elements come into play in the book, The Third Arc, or The Last Arc. Um, and then my third book, which is Curse of Cortez, was uh, separate from those. It doesn't deal with artificial intelligence or espionage at all. It was actually based on history. And it started from a short story I wrote for my son when he was like 11 or 12. And I started doing research for the follow-up book, but I got so entranced and caught up and obsessive with the research that it took me well over decade, 12 years to basically just do the research for the book. And then it took me several years while I was in my career to basically write the book. And it deals with the billion dollar, 30 ton lost plunder of Henry Morgan after he raided Panama and how that connected to the Inquisition an Inquisition massacre, how that connected to the Mayan 5,000 year calendar and how that connected to the Mayan creation myth. And the creation myth basically then pointed to their end of the world prophecies that um, about the epoch that ended in 2012. So it's a really amazing journey that I took. And, and so some of the characters in there are also somewhat traumatized. Uh, they deal with uh, family insanity. They deal with uh, loss of their parents. They deal with the stigma of being believing that they've been, their family's been cursed, and um, and and so in all of the books, there's there I'm I'm looking at characters that um, are working through um, their their working through the the nightmares of their past as they're trying to basically build something for their future. I could talk to you all day. I'm so fascinated with all of this. I really am. I have to ask you because you were talking about this. What do you believe about the balloon that not too long ago was seen flying over Montana and was over Alaska? And then they finally shot it down over South Carolina, I believe. Oh, well, China's definitely um, will do everything and anything they can to to spy on us and, and eavesdrop into our communications and everything else. And if they, they can't um, basically get through the firewall, they'll do other things. Um, I believe it was a Chinese spy balloon. I think their response to us proves that that it was. Um, knowing that we're going to be able to, we were able to jam it and that we were going to able to now go through and, and salvage it and get some of their technology doesn't make them happy. Um, 
I, I think there are worse threats from China than the balloon that aren't being talked about. But, um, but why but- wait all that time? There was so much land in Montana and there's so much before it even got through Alaska. Well, you know, the wait. They, they said when they went to get the debris that the debris was scattered over six miles. So it's um, even in Montana, there are a lot of indigenous communities in Montana. There are, yeah, it's possible they could have done it there, but by the time they basically had a chance to really kind of talk this through, it might've been moving past Montana. I I trust that the military and the military might've said, hey, we can jam the signals. Um, This gives us a chance to study this thing a little bit better to see how it's actually maneuvering. Um, let's let uh, get, we don't get this. Let's take this as an opportunity to learn more about what they're doing and how they're doing it. And while we're jamming the signals to prevent them from actually gathering anything, and then let's get rid of it over someplace where it's, it, even if it scatters over miles, we don't have any chance that it could land on something. Okay. And, and I think that there's, you know, th- yeah, there is a lot of land in Montana and it probably could have been shot down in Montana without incident. But, to t- you know, here's the thing, and, and you got to play the risk game in politics. What if? What if it does hit something? They're going to blame you. Sure. Right. So okay. it's a, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't scenario. So if I got the damned if I do, damned if I don't scenario, I'm going to try and jam it, learn from it, wait till it's over water where possibly can't hurt anybody and 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 then we'll deal with the oh you should have done something sooner because it's a damned if you do damned if you don't scenario so i actually tend to agree with their approach um um once you step back and look at the whole thing and yeah you're right it could have landed and not hurt anybody could have also landed and hit something yeah. Maybe even a car on a highway, maybe even, you know, uh, it, it, the chances that they could completely control something 60,000 feet in the air and control how it's going to land. Uh, anybody who's, you know, that that's, you're, you're playing probabilities and, and, and chances there. Right. And I think they, they, they took the more conservative approach. Uh, they, uh, they knew that what it was there. It wasn't like they, they could, they were going to keep letting it spy um, but they, I think they made the right choice, not myself. So winding up, even though, like I said, I would love to talk to you all day long. Do you believe that the world is entering its final time? Do you think that we're kind yes, of at the end? Do I you do. Know? Yeah, Why do you is. think that? Um, you know, as a Christian for years, I, 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 I read the left behind series, which and even then I felt just had a lot of bias built into it. Uh, and whenever I hear um, many people teaching about end times, they focus a lot on the allegories. And through the because the allegories are so vague, they're often, I think, create and they do make two mistakes. They focus on the allegory as opposed to the outcome of the allegory. And then they try to use it as a way to predict the future. And I believe that first off, we should be focusing on um, the outcome of the allegory. And then aligning, we can align that to actual events of whether or not they occurred or didn't occur. And I'll tell you a great example in a second. And that prophecy is not meant to predict the future, but to in- correctly interpret the present as it occurs. And so one example was, I, and, and 
this started when I was actually reading a National Geographic magazine, and the magazine had to deal with fish stock decreases in all of the major fishing um, um, areas around the world, from China to the U.S. to Europe to uh, South America. And they had calculated that the fish stocks, based on the fish hauls coming in and how far out the, the boats had to go and the, how many of them came back half empty that the fish stocks had already decreased by well over 30 percent and they had calculations for each of the regions by how much but it was roughly 30 percent and it occurred to me that there was a prophecy called the seven trumpets where a fish for a third of the fish of the sea would die a third of the birds of the air would die a third of the beasts of the land would die and a third of the rivers would be so poisoned we couldn't drink from them and I realized that after, I read National Geographic on a regular basis at that point and, and other science magazines and environmental magazines because I was with an oil company and we had to track those things. All of those things had already occurred. It wasn't some futuristic event. They had already occurred. And so I started thinking about prophecy from a probability model. I mean, just like I had done modeling for the, the macroeconomics, uh, which had hundreds of variables and in, 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 in dozens and dozens of algorithms to basically process, I thought I could probably do the same with prophecy. And so I did. I actually uh, got a whole stack of um, magazines to talk about the environmental issues so I can get real data. I took at the time at the oil company, I had these sophisticated computer programs that could do all of this regression analysis. I had a hundred million, a couple hundred million years of geologic data about what happens to the world with, with, under certain circumstances, asteroids, super volcanoes. And I said, well, if I take out asteroids and supervolcanoes, what are the probability of all of the, you know, and I had about 15 prophecies, starting with the creation of Israel in 1948, when a world body got together and said, hey, let's give this, this people who were dispersed from their homeland 2000 years ago, let's give them back their homeland. And realizing that in all of history, everybody's history from every continent, that's a singular event. Now, whether you agree with the politics of it, whether you agree with which cause you're side on is irrelevant to the fact that it was a singular event in all history. So starting with that event, and then I lined up, I think, another 12 or 15 different events that I could come up with solid evidence that the, not the allegory. Now, in the seven trumpets, the allegory was that this flaming asteroid had come down from Earth and all these things happened. Well, that didn't happen. These were all of aspects of human behavior. So I basically lined those up and I said, well, what's the probability of this happening? And then what's the probability of this happening? And what's the probability of this happening? And what's the probability of all these things happening together? And at the end of a very long three-day weekend um, <laughs> in front of my computer, I came back with numbers of one, it was one in 1.4 trillion against random chance. Now, even if my numbers were off by a factor of 100, it's still an amazingly large number. And that started changing my thinking. That prophecy was less about how God would come down and destroy humanity with all these horrible allegory events, as much as man would basically be, we would basically, a warning of how man would basically destroy ourselves. And that when we saw all these things happening, that was a sign that, that the, the final end was near. And so I started looking at the world with new eyes. I started looking at my career with new eyes. I started changing my priorities. I started looking at the, uh, the news with a, a, a filtered view of saying, well, if I strip away the allegories of some of these prophecies and focus on the outcomes, can I actually monitor the occurrence of those outcomes 
to a probability level where it's not just like, you know, there's some that people say, well, as in the days of Noah, man will be immoral. Well, yeah, but that's always been the case. I mean, I can talk about the days of Noah and the days of, of the Romans and the days of the, you know, the Chinese and the days of England and King Henry. And we can look at the Inquisition and we can look at the, the Crusades and we can, you know, so I, I wanted to find things that were more objective and less subjective. And if I could find enough of those things, was there a validated mathematical conclusion that these were not, that these were so unusual and so packed together that it gave us a clue as to what was going on. And so uh, my belief is the math tells me yes. And what kind of time frame do you think this will happen? I, th I think we're, um, I, I think we're much closer than we want to admit. I'm afraid to, as I said, I'm, I always delay trying to project into the future, but my personal belief is that we're, we're getting extremely close. I think that the events in Ukraine are adding to it. Now, China is trying to support Ukraine, uh, the Russians and in, in, in lengthening this Ukrainian war. I believe their main goal is that if they can get the EU and the NATO, NATO alliance to basically deplete their uh, ammunition stocks and their financial reserves, trying to support a, um, Ukraine, that's going to make it much, much easier for them to go after Taiwan. Now, they're going after Taiwan, not because just because of nationalistic reasons, but because Taiwan produces 85% of the advanced chips made in all the world. So all of the, our military relies on Taiwan chips. Our industry relies on Taiwan chips. Cars rely on Taiwan chips. Artificial intelligence rely on Taiwan chips. <coughs> Sorry. China wants to be the dominant world power in the next century. To do that, they need to be the dominant world power against all these technologies, and they can essentially hold us hostage by controlling Taiwan and those chips. And it would take at least 10 years for us to basically replicate that ability to produce chips at that volume. Uh, we're started. We've started a few plants in a few places, but it's a it's a long it's a long game. And uh, China believes that they could basically, um, if they can make the Ukrainian war go on longer by supporting Russia, they can deplete our, not only our, our stocks and our reserves, but deplete our national will. Do you have a time frame in your mind that you think it would be? Um, I, I, well, it, it's, a, uh, it's, I think we're within a few years of entering what I, what's called, there's two phases of prophecy. One's called the signs of the times. And that's all hundreds, 800 plus different signs and prophecies that are being fulfilled during this period. And I've read other people basically saying that 85% um, of all those or 90% of them have already been fulfilled. And I haven't calculated all of them, but it's, it's, a, it's a very high number. Uh, and I've looked at some of the summaries and they make sense. Uh, and then there's a, those are signs of the times are basically warnings to get us up to what would called the seven year tribulation. And uh, which where things go from um, bad to even worse. And then even, and then really bad. Um, and I think that we're probably within a few years. If I look at um, the um, advances in artificial intelligence, um, the how close we are to what we call a conscious or sentient artificial intelligence. And there's like 25 companies around the world actively working on that. When I look at uh, AI robotics, when I look at AI driven um, weapon systems, such as what the DARPA is working on, what the Navy has, uh, a, a drone system called the, uh, the Locust. 
Um, when I look at politics and how corrupted those have become and, and, our, and the news cycles and, and the level of misinformation, um, the World Economic Forum is now actively working with the Federal Reserve, the Bank of England, uh, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, and a number of uh, banks around the world to create a digital um, currency to replace the U.S. dollar. And they're within a couple of years of getting that passed through. The Federal Reserve is already doing tests on that uh, type of currency. Um, I, we're probably within a few years of, of that tribulation period starting, in my view. Uh, now, one thing that all prophecy, I, I, I claim about all anybody who tries to study prophecy is you have to be willing to say, but I could be wrong. Right. Because it, there are a lot there are a lot of elements or a lot of moving pieces all I can tell you is that from a probability model perspective, it's less likely that we're not in the end times and more likely that we are just based on the math and the probabilities of events that have already occurred that would um, are extraordinarily out of context to our natural history. That's just fascinating, but it's scary too. It's it's scary at the same and, time. And again, I try to, and it's one of the reasons I bake that into my books, which is I'm trying to help people to not be afraid, as opposed to realizing that this is an opportunity for us to make decisions, to make choices. Uh, I one of the things that I used to I used to joke with people. I said I've read all the all the medical studies I can, and they all come to the same conclusion that the death rate's 100. Um, percent and it's not how and when that we die that matters. It's the choices that we make while we're alive that matter. And so if even if we have this sort of time frame that might be a few years to a decade in front of us, if you really knew, if your doctor came to you and said, listen, you've got an incurable disease, I give you at most 10 years. Would that, for most people, would that change how they view their life and how they view their family, how they view their career, how they view their choices? For most people, it would. Absolutely. And I think prophecy is the same thing. It's a chance for us to start reevaluating. And for some people, they'll say, "Pooh, I'm, I'm a, I'm a crazy kook. I'm, I'm, you know, I challenge them to prove it. Um, but, <laughs> um, but for most people, they'll co completely reject this. For most people, they're so caught up in their uh, um, pursuit of wealth, pursuit of family, pursuit of their cause, their activism, whatever it is, that they they just and some people just don't want to you know, think about negative things that it'll just gloss over. So when things start to happen, many people will be surprised. Um, and, but a few people won't. And if I can help a few people not be surprised, um, that's, I guess, what I feel like I'm trying to do, which is say that you can make positive changes in your life. We can't change the world. No, I, I, there's no way that any of us uh, and I've worked with people like Bill Gates and who's trying to change the world in some way. And he's trying to take viruses in Africa and a few things and doing minor work. But he's also so compromised by his own success that he's part of the WEF. So we're, we're doing this in ways where unless you're cognizant or aware of what prophecy says is, are, are things that, that will happen and we should be aware of. It's easy to just get wrapped up into this sort of this is just how the world is advancing sort of thing. And um, without necessarily taking a moral, ethical, or spiritual viewpoint of whether that's the right direction. And I think that's what I'm trying to do in my books is give people, my readers, the opportunity to not, I'm not telling them what that should be, 
I'm giving them the information and, and, and in a sense, in my characters, asking those questions, hoping that my readers will ask those same things of themselves. Guy, it has been amazing to have this opportunity to interview you. Please tell everybody where they can find you. Uh, easiest place to go is uh, that's a good starting point is GuyMorrisBooks.com. It has links to the to buy the books, various links. It has uh, uh, highlights from my reviewers that compare me to Dan Brown, Robert Ludlum, Myers Johansson, and others. It has a uh, fact versus fiction, and follows some links to some of the research I've done to talk when I talk about drone swarms and lethal autonomous weapon systems treaties and and coding writing itself. It gives you links, um, and then also some great videos and image libraries of the places you'll go in the book. Fantastic! Promise me we'll do this again. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you so much.